Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. So some weeks ago, you can give and listen at the same time, right? Some weeks ago, the Lord moved on me to pray for the sick, even though I had not preached a message on healing. That wasn't what I had prepared. I delivered the message uh, that I had prepared, and, and, and then uh, we prayed for the sick uh, in obedience to the Lord, and God did great things. And since then, I have been teaching slash preaching on healing, starting with a message on uh, miracles of healing, and then two weeks ago, a message on our covenant of healing, Today, I want to talk about what I feel is the most important aspect of divine healing, which, of course, is faith. Healing by faith, or faith for healing. Now, I hope you understand uh, that we cannot separate faith for healing from belief in miracles. We can't separate faith for healing from our healing covenant. Our faith for healing is rooted in our healing covenant and the evidence of healing miracles. Uh, But let me start with this. As we know, as we have witnessed most of our lives, there there are many reasons people fail to receive healing from God. And let me make that specification very clear. It is not there are many reasons God doesn't heal people. It's there are many reasons people don't receive their healing. Do you understand the difference there? God heals, but not everybody receives healing. If you think that's a silly distinction, let me spell it out a different way here in just a minute. Uh, But let me start by recognizing there are many different traditions, many different theological backgrounds people are coming from, doctrinal backgrounds, but probably the biggest issue is simply, is it God's will to heal, or is it always God's will to heal? Because if you took a poll of all the people who call themselves Christians, the most popular answer to that question would, some, would almost certainly be, it's only God's will sometimes. Everybody who believes the Bible or says they believe the Bible or think they believe the Bible, will, will, uh, I, I can't imagine anybody saying God never heals. Certainly they all recognize he has healed, and most of them, I would say the vast majority would say, yeah, he still can. Uh, and uh, occasionally still does. But is it God's will to heal? Sometimes. And what do they base that on? Well, because some people don't get healed. Uh, And some people will base that answer in the argument of God's sovereignty. Well, we can't expect God to do everything we ask him because that makes us God. And God is God, and by definition, God, God does what God wants to do, and therefore, if somebody doesn't get healed, it's because God did not will or desire to heal them. It's clear. Uh, It's odd to me as a faith person that anybody could read the Bible and, and biblically arrive at the conclusion that sometimes it's God's will for people to remain sick. I'm going to develop that here in a little bit too. But it really ties into the broader question, probably the most famous theological conundrum of all time when people philosophically wrestle with this 
is if God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And they would say, well, God must not be all good because he's all powerful. Uh, and if he can stop the suffering and he doesn't, well, and they might not say he's not good, but they would say that all this suffering and all this evil is somehow uh, providential, that God is exercising his sovereignty over these things. Uh, but that's a silly argument. That's the Calvinist argument. But I cannot get around, if, if people are going to make that argument, you, can't, you can only take that so far because all of this evil, uh, James makes this clear. The reason there are wars, the big issues of, of the world, as well as the little ones, interpersonal relationships, all these tensions, all this sickness in society worldwide is caused by what? Sin. And God did not ordain sin, correct? He did not ordain sin in the beginning. He does not ordain or control. He doesn't cause us to sin, certainly. And so if all these things are as a result of sin and we're not going to attribute the sin to God, then we can't attribute evil and suffering to God. Man has to own that. Uh, now I know there are deeper philosophical and theological treatments of this issue, the sovereignty issue, that I'm capable of. But to put it as simply as I can... I'll put it this way. God is sovereign. Many of you have heard me say this before. One of the most common attacks on people like us, and when I say people like us, I mean word of faith, people who identify as word of faith people. Uh, one of the most common criticisms is it impugns the sovereignty of God. If you're saying, I am going to declare this for my life, for my body, for my finances, for my family, whatever, then you are making yourself God. You are making God your servant. You're saying, I'm going to say this, so God has to do it. Uh, and and if, you're, if you put it that simply, then yeah, that does impugn the sovereignty of God. But here's what I would say in terms of faith, receiving by faith, standing on the promises. God, in his sovereignty, has decided and ordained that we must participate in receiving things by faith. Do you understand that? Uh, God himself isn't bound by us and our word. He has bound himself to his word. God, I'll put it this way, God in his sovereignty has not uh, made provision for himself to not answer certain promises. God has not left that option open to himself. If God says, I will do such and such, God in his sovereignty cannot go back on that because he cannot lie. All right? So then the question simply becomes, how do we know if it's God's will? Has he spoken? Has he made a promise? He, can't, he cannot not fulfill a promise uh, in his sovereignty. Here's something I saw uh, just yesterday, and this was a post from a minister, a word of faith minister, uh, and he, he posted this on Facebook, and it says this. Now, don't amen this. I'm warning you, <laughs> because then I'd be embarrassed to the next thing that comes out of my mouth. Until we understand that God, all caps, cannot do anything without our permission, we will never understand God or who God made us to be. This is clearly overstating the case. I think all this guy, and as I read through the comments, and because I know this guy, I know what he's saying is that God doesn't force us into certain positions. He doesn't control us like a puppet that our faith has a, a, place, a, a part to play in this. But come on, he did not create the world and the universe with our permission. 
And there are things that God has even done in the lives of believers and servants of his. That he did, did Jonah give God permission to shove him down a fish's throat? Or did God just do it? He did it. Now, he did that in the context of Jonah, presumably at some point, dedicating his life to hearing from God and obeying God. And God has ways of bringing us into obedience, doesn't he? Jonah ran, and God didn't keep him from running. But once Jonah was thrown overboard, God had this fish swallow him, and then three days later, vomit him up on the shore, and then it's kind of like this. Now are you going to Nineveh? Nineveh, fish's mouth, Nineveh, I'll go, I'll go. It always reminds me of that joke, sorry, because probably everybody's heard this, but it's one of my favorite. A uh, guy uh, comes back from a fishing, every time he goes out fishing, he comes back with just a boatload of fish. And the game warden comes out there and says, you know, buddy, I see you coming out with all those fish. You must have some kind of secret. What are you doing? He goes, I'm just fishing, fishing like I always do. He says, mind if I come with you? See how you catch all these fish? He says, sure, hop in. So they go out in the middle of the lake. As soon as they uh, drop anchor, this guy, the fisherman, pulls out a stick of dynamite, lights it, throws it in the water. Kaboom, here come all these fish, and this guy's scooping them up into the boat. And the game warden says, wait a second, that's illegal, I'm going to have to arrest you. And the guy lights another stick of dynamite, throws it into the lap of the game warden, and says, you going to talk or are you going to fish? Forcing the game warden to throw a stick of dynamite into the water. See, this is it. I'm not going to go, God. Are you going to go or are you going to get back in the fish's mouth? You're gonna God has ways without sovereignly forcing us. He has ways of channeling us into doing the things he wants us to do. So it's clearly overstating the case that God can do nothing without our permission. And it's statements like that of, that naturally get people's back up and say, you can't say that. That, may, that statement isolated out of context, does bring legitimate criticism to the Word of Faith message. So we have to understand that when it comes down to healing, just like anything else, we are talking about not what we want and what we are commanding God to do and what we give permission for God to do. It's simply finding out, recognizing, discovering whether or not God has already made his will clear on it. Has God spoken on this matter? Has he made a promise? Has God promised healing? Is it always God's will to heal? And I believe the answer is yes. Someone asked, and I think I began to respond to this last week when I tried to cram this message into five minutes of wrap-up at the end of uh, something else God was doing. Someone asked a a theologian a question, is healing provided for in the atonement? And the atonement, when we use the atonement in that context, we're talking about the finished work of Christ on the cross. And again, as I think I mentioned last week, but since I was going without notes last week and since I didn't watch the recording, I don't know. Atonement technically means covering, but when we talk about the atoning work of Christ, we're talking about a cleansing. We're talking about what Jesus did at the cross was the fulfillment of everything the Day of Atonement and all of these other Old Testament rituals represented. They were shadows of, they were types of what Christ, they were temporary versions of what Christ was going to do for real, once and for all, permanently. All right? So the finished work of Christ is healing provided for at the cross. And the answer from this uh, reform guy, I think, was, 
Yes, healing is provided for in the atonement, but it's not guaranteed. What he meant by that was, when God heals, he does it on the basis of the finished work of Christ. But what Christ did doesn't mean everybody's going to be healed. This is true. But what Christ did also doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. You, you believe that, right? Tough as it is, the Bible clearly shows that not all go to heaven. Not all will live forever in the blissful state of eternal existence with the God who created and loves them. Some will burn. Some will be cast into outer darkness. But what determines that? Is it the mysterious, inscrutable will of God? Or is it our choice? Who did Jesus die for? You can answer. All of us. The world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever was elected from before creation might not perish. No, whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, it's as simple as that. When Christ died, when he bled on the cross, when he died on the cross, he provided forgiveness for everybody. This is super, super important because remember how God worked his forgiveness. The entire world, every single person in it, needs salvation. Why? Because we all carry the sin nature, and because of that, we all sin. God, being sovereign, right? If he can do whatever, simply by the counsel of his will, why didn't he just say, eh, you're forgiven? Because God doesn't violate his nature. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The price had to be paid. So, God forgave us by taking your sin, my sin, and laying it on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ took the punishment. You know that, right? What else did he do? He took your sickness and your disease and laid those on Jesus Christ in the form of those stripes. This is when we talk about healing and getting healing from God and God exercising sovereignty and healing us, it's not a matter of I heal you now. It's I purchased your healing already. I purchased it when I purchased your salvation. It is part of the atonement package. I Personally, when I look at what is wrapped up in sin and forgiveness, I'm convinced from the word that all we need in order to know that God desires our healing and has provided our healing is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because sickness is, is in the world as a result of the fall. And when we are redeemed from the curse through the blood of Jesus, we are redeemed from poverty, sickness, and death. But God loves us and is so invested, I believe, in seeing us healed that he drove that point home with those stripes. In other words, Jesus didn't need to be beaten to save us. He needed to bleed and die. I don't also believe he needed to be beat to heal us. 
because forgiveness brings the healing. But he had, he laid those diseases, those sicknesses, those illnesses, those injuries, those deformities, those defects on Jesus to remind us that we are healed. I'm going to bear your sin and everything that comes with that, but I'm going to specifically bear your infirmities in the form of those stripes. Who did he do it for? Did he just do that so that God could heal one out of a hundred people or one out of a million people who ask him? No. Same way that Jesus didn't bleed and die so that God could pick and choose who he wanted to save. Whoever believes will be saved. Anybody who, can, who will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart, heart that God has raised him from the dead will be saved. It's the same way with healing. If we believe it, we can and will receive it. Uh, here's where I think some of the breakdown is, and there's nothing new in any of this. A lot of this is storing you up by way of reminder, even my stories. But why, if healing has been purchased, has been made readily available, if it's something that God doesn't desire to withhold from us, why is it so hard to get? Why is it so hard to see that manifested in our life? And I think it's always on us. Now, that's not to say, you didn't have enough faith, it's your fault. What I mean is this. There are some things that are easier for us to receive, like salvation. How did I know I was saved when I got saved? Now, your story might be different from mine. Uh, and I'm already might not finish this whole sermon, but I'm still going to give you a short version of my testimony. That bear with me. I'm sorry. Maybe you've heard it 50 times. When I was a kid, when I was a little kid, uh, I was raised in a home that believed the Bible. We went to church. It wasn't a word of faith church. I didn't clearly hear the gospel preached until much later than I should have. But because we went to church every Sunday and because I took it for granted, because I was raised to believe, I believed in God. I never questioned the existence of God. I knew who Jesus was. I knew a lot of the Bible stories, even though I couldn't begin to tell you how they fit together. I'm talking when I was six, seven, eight years old, all right? But I heard about heaven and hell. In addition to what we heard in Sunday school and in church, my mom would read to us stories. She would share with us things that she knew, because you know, she went to parochial school. And, uh, we tease her about that all the time. But she did. She learned a lot about the Bible because she went to a religious school. And uh, so I learned a lot about these stories and stuff, and certainly enough to know, enough to disturb me. It scared me to think about living forever, especially when I knew it was a binary uh, proposition. I'm either going to live forever in hell or I'm going to live forever in heaven. And that began to haunt me. How do you know? And I just assumed you couldn't know. The only way you're going to know is when you die. And that's too late to do anything about it. I would talk about this with my friends. Have a friend over to spend the night, nine years old, talking about heaven and hell, talking about eternal destiny. I don't know how weird that is, but we did it. And I would pray, God, please don't, uh, God bless mommy and daddy. Thank you for my house. God bless my sisters. Please don't let me die. No, I said, please don't let there be a tornado. That was my prayer. I had this pathological fear of tornadoes because I read an article about them in the Weekly Reader, and then I read a book about them and just fed that fear. So please don't let there be a tornado. And uh, 
I remember asking my Sunday school teacher this. How many, how many of you remember this story? I asked my Sunday school teacher. I think I was in second, third grade. And I asked my Sunday school teacher, uh, if God, and I'm sure this wasn't what the lesson was about, but we get done with the lesson. Does anybody have any questions? I have one. Why is there evil and suffering in the world if God is a sovereign? No, I didn't say that. I said, but it was, a, it was a child's version of that question. I said, if God is good and God can do anything, why does he let there be tornadoes? You know, might as well, why does he let there be spiders in my house or anything like that, whatever your fear is. Uh, but her answer crushed me. She's my Sunday school teacher, and she must know what she's talking about. And here was her answer. There are some things God can't do anything about. <laughs> so, so then I thought, and I started praying, oh, dear God, God bless Mommy and Daddy. Thank you for my house. God bless my sisters. Not in that order. God bless Mommy and Daddy. I love my sisters, and thank you for the house. Uh, all, all of your blessings in my life. Uh, please don't let there be any tornadoes. But if there's going to be a tornado, please don't let me die. And then I made the philosophical leap forward. If he can't stop a tornado, he probably can't stop me from dying. So I would say, please don't let there be a tornado. If there is a tornado, please don't let me die. If I die, please let me go to heaven. This is what I prayed every night. And so all that to say, all that to say, fast forward a couple years now, and when somebody finally showed me from the word, and this was a process, people were showing it, it just wasn't clicking. But when I saw in the word that you could know, that you didn't have to wait until you died, that you could know now that you are heaven bound, it changed my life. Now most of you know, this doesn't have part of the faith message, but most of you know what made it click. It was my mom standing in the kitchen stirring something at the stove and she said, have you been listening to these messages? Uh, when are you going to give your life to Jesus? When are you going to be born again? Because everybody had done it in my house by this point. Uh, some of them just fairly recently. And I knew I wanted to do it. I wasn't opposed to it. I don't know what was holding me back, but I said, I'm going to. I just don't know when. And mom says, what if lightning strikes you in your bed tonight? And I said, what? I'll go to heaven, right? No, that's what this whole thing is about. Being born again is what assures you of heaven. Oh, then everything I had heard up to that point kind of coalesced. I get it now. There was no way I was going to wait until Sunday for an altar call because lightning might strike me in my bed tonight. And I went and curled up in a chair and said, dear Jesus, please save me. Come and live in my heart. That's all that happened. The sudden realization and a cry from the heart for salvation. There was no tangible sense of my sin being lifted away. There was no sudden revelation. There was no vision. Uh, there was no immediate transformation. The only difference was I went to bed that night and slept like a baby. I walked to my bedroom with a smile on my, on my face because I knew. How did I know? Because the Word of God said it. That's all the evidence I needed at 12 years of age. And that's all the evidence most of you needed. Now, you may have had a much more dramatic experience when you got saved. Maybe you did see a vision. Maybe you had a Matt Gober experience where you saw Jesus hanging on the cross in your apartment saying, I did this for you. Most of you probably didn't. Most of you probably made a decision because you came face to face with the word of God. But I'll bet very, very few of you walked away from that altar call, rose up from your knees in prayer, uh, and, and then said, well, I don't feel any different. I don't think I got saved. How many of you just knew 
that by the time you prayed that prayer, you knew praying that prayer was all you needed. Just a commitment. Yeah, five of you. Everybody else either isn't saved or had a miraculous experience. Honestly, most of you just knew when you prayed, right? But when we pray for healing or when we get prayed for to be healed, most of us, even without meaning to, are like, ah, nope, that still hurts. Guess I didn't get it. The pain is still there. I must not be healed. When we need to be convinced that because of what we see in the Word of God, we are healed. That's the reality. Listen, I was saved at age 12. Little by little over the years, I began to look more saved, act more saved, speak more saved. That salvation was real and mine from the moment I spoke that prayer, it began to be manifested in my life as my mind was renewed. And as I grew in knowledge, wisdom, stature, and favor with man and God. It's the same way with your healing. Now, same time, I know people who have been utterly transformed at the moment of salvation. And I know people who have been utterly healed the moment they're prayed for. But the healing took place 2,000 years ago. And when you pray for it, when you have hands laid on you, you receive it. The power of God is in your, in your body and that knowledge, you speak that faith and it's effecting a healing and a cure just as you grow in faith, just as you grow in wisdom, just as you grow in knowledge, just as you grow into the image of Christ, you grow in healing as well. It's a little more exciting, it's a little more fun when it happens all at once. But don't ever fall into the trap of believing you haven't been healed. Now, on to faith. Uh... Healing is important enough, obviously, as we read the New Testament, for Jesus to spend a significant amount of time in his earthly ministry healing the sick. Uh, do you remember, and this may be the most important reason, in John chapter 14, and you can open your Bibles to that if you want, I wish you would, John 14, beginning in verse 7. Now, Philip had just asked Jesus to show them the Father. Show us the Father, Lord. And here's what, here's what Jesus says, beginning in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, well, here we go. I, I, I started before I, met, I, I thought I did. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Hmm. My Father who dwells in me does the works. It's vital to understand Jesus never did anything or said any, responded to any circumstance, participated in any conversation in a way that did not perfectly represent the Father. When Jesus answered a challenge, when he answered a question, his answer always reflected, not just kind of, but perfectly, how God the Father would respond in those situations. Colossians 1.14 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning the exact representation of God. 
Hebrews 1.3 says the same thing. In John chapter 5, after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, we read this. In John chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. This is powerful. It's a little bit kind of just kind of restating what we just read. But he only does not what the Father tells him to do, but what he sees the Father do. I quoted George MacDonald a couple weeks ago, maybe again last week. The works that Jesus did, the miracles of Jesus were his father's normal works wrought small and swift so we could see them. Why did Jesus heal so much? Because that's what he saw his father doing. How does God respond to sickness? God heals. That's exactly how Jesus responded to sickness. He didn't just decide, God didn't just decide to get people's attention by equipping Jesus to do mighty works. Jesus went about doing what he did because he had compassion, but primarily to show them what God was like. How does God respond to sin? He judges it. How does God respond to demonic oppression and possession? He delivers. He casts demons out. How does God respond to sickness? According to Jesus, who only did what he saw the Father doing, he heals. That's God's response to sickness. I know you know this, but I will never tire of saying it because it's the strongest single line of reasoning in the healing debate. Debate, as it were. If we're going to get hung up on whether God is working some mysterious purpose in our lives by withholding healing, we need to look no further than the ministry of Jesus because he never refused healing to anyone who came to him asking for healing. Why do I believe it's always God's will to heal? Because Jesus always healed them all. We are going to be on this for a few weeks. That's all right, isn't it? But I want to take a step back and prioritize a couple of things, a couple of healing episodes, and, and line them up with what we can expect to see in our lives. I need to kind of... Uh, I won't say rush through it. If I feel like we're, we're getting behind or if I'm having to cram more into this, I'll slow down and we'll just we'll pick it up again next week. But here's something most of us have noticed, especially with a protracted illness or a chronic condition or a fatal disease. People, by and large, are willing to spend their last penny. No matter what they've accumulated, they will trade their possessions, their wealth, financial security, and they'll expend every energy and every effort fighting with everything in them to live one more year, one more month, or even one more day on this earth. Even when we know this earth is perishing, even though we know that the world we are going to when we leave this one is infinitely better. I mean, we know that, right? How many of you believe, no matter how happy you are now, how many of you believe heaven is going to be better? How many of you believe it's going to be a lot better? Paul knew that, right? And yet, we will fight to stay here. 
tooth and nail. Why is that? Now listen, I already said being sick, well, if I didn't say it, I meant to say it. Being sick, dying of sick, sickness, dying of disease is not going to send you to hell. It's not a sin, okay? But, I, Dad said something years ago. I remember we were still in the Ogden building. And I uh, heard him say it more than once, but I know I heard him say it from the pulpit at least once. He said, there are going to be, the first thing God's going to have to do when we all get to heaven is heal our heads. Because when we get there, we're going to be doing this. Oh! Oh! I missed it. Oh! I never saw that. That's why I didn't get this. That's why I didn't do that. We're going to have to heal our flat heads. And I think a lot of people who left this life early, who died of disease, are going to go, oh, I didn't fulfill everything God had for me because I died young because I didn't. Uh, except that he, I didn't understand the healing message. It's not going to send us to hell. In other words, I don't believe missing, failing to receive the manifestation of our healing is going to cost us in eternity. It might cost us in terms of years and influence and things here, but uh, God's a kind God uh, and a merciful God. And yet... The reason I bring it up is we tolerate a lot of things in our lives that are going to affect our eternity. I'm not talking about the difference between heaven and hell. I'm talking about God being a just God. Yes, he's kind. Yes, he's merciful, merciful, but he's also just. And while our salvation and our eternal residence may not be determined by our works, our rewards are. I don't believe that every single person that goes to heaven is going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I believe some is going to be like, love you, glad you're here, but I sure had a lot, for, but you, there's a lot you should have done to represent me better while you were there. I don't want to hear that. Peter talked about an abundant entrance into the kingdom. That's what I want to receive, and that's what I want you to receive. What's going to determine that? What we do with our time here. And yet, we will tolerate a lot of sin in our lives, a lot of laziness in our lives, a lot of flesh, fleshliness in our lives because we don't make that connection between here and heaven, and yet we won't tolerate sickness. We will spend money. We will fight. We will sacrifice practically anything to stay in this body one more day, one more month, one more year when leaving this body isn't going to cost us. It's a matter of prioritizing things. Uh, it, it's, it's radical, but that's exactly what we see when Paul writes, I'm really having a hard time deciding something here. I don't know whether to, to stay here or to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, or remain in the flesh. And then he writes, I'm, I'm deciding to stay here, but I need you to know I'm only doing that for you. If this were all about me, I'm out of here. We don't really have, we know heaven's going to be better, but it's almost like it's a consolation prize. Well, it's better than hell, but not as good as sticking around here. If we could see everything from God's perspective, we'd know we would hunger for heaven to be now. Anyway, if we, I think manifestation of our healing, receiving the healing that God purchased for us would be easier if we made more of a priority of manifesting the holiness 
that God made available to us? How is it possible that we can live holy life only by the finished work of Christ? And if we pursued that as passionately as we pursued healing, we would see more healing in our lives. Do you understand? You're either looking down or nodding your head, so I'm moving on. If our goal for sticking around is to stay here and influence one more person and bring as many people possible with us to heaven, then yeah, that's a good goal to be healed. What are we here for? Live the gospel, preach the gospel. Our faith is one faith. If our faith is real, if our faith is robust, it will manifest in all areas of our lives. If we believe in the word of God for healing, we must believe in the word of God to govern our lives and the choices we make, our manner of living. Once God has made his will known for anything, that is what we must do. That is what we must exercise faith for. Faith, even in word of faith churches, is not, I want X, Y, Z. Therefore, I'm going, to, I'm going to believe for it. I'm going to speak it into my life. By faith, I claim this thing. No, faith begins where the will of God is known. Faith doesn't begin with what I want. It begins where the will of God is known. Can I, so therefore, can I have faith for holy living? Absolutely. Because God has clearly made it, God has made it abundantly clear that we should live holy lives. Can uh, I have faith for divine guidance? Yes. Can I have faith for financial supply? Absolutely. Can I have faith for healing? Yes. Why? Because God has made his will clear, made it clearly known in all of these areas. Really, since this life is so short anyway, and since the gospel is what really matters, should we put such an emphasis on healing? Yes. We are commanded to in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who forgives all of your iniquities, and what's the very second thing? Heals all your diseases. There's a command there, not to forget that. Let's wrap it up with this first story. I have uh, several scriptural examples, and I will save them mostly for next week. But I do want you to see this because it ties in nicely with what I've said about the atonement. If we're going to preach the gospel, well, since time is limited, let's preach the gospel rather than healing. Or let's emphasize the gospel over healing. Look at this in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But ultimately, uh, sorry, let me back up. The they here is talking about Paul and company, all right? Um, verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and, the, and to the surrounding region. And 
they were preaching the gospel there. They go from one place to another, and what were they doing as soon as they got there? Preaching the gospel. Good, because that's what's important, right? And in Lystra, verse 8, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb. This is a birth defect. A cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. What was Paul speaking? The gospel. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Paul was preaching the gospel, and this man, it says, didn't have faith to be saved. He had faith to be healed. How can you hear the gospel? And Paul, preaching the gospel, perceived this man had faith. He heard something. He heard Paul say something as he preached the gospel that clicked and made that healing connection. Why? Because healing is part of the gospel. It is not the gospel, and then here's a bunch of little add-on things. It's the whole package, the, whole, the full gospel. That's, what, that's where that phrase came from. It, it, it offends some people. Oh, you're saying I preach the partial gospel? No, you just don't understand what is in the gospel. Well, we just preach the gospel at our church. Yeah, but you're not preaching the full gospel if you're not preaching the gifts of the Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and healing and prosperity because these are all part of the good news. If you are saved, the mechanism that God used, the process the event that God used to save you is the same one that purchased your healing, your provision, your protection, your deliverance. When you understand that, that is the first big step to being able to receive the healing. A healing line, a healing prayer, a laying on of hands, a confession is not about what can I do to get God to heal me. It's what can I do to put myself, what Anything I can do to put myself in a posture to receive what is already mine. It's like, back to the bank illustration. I don't go to the bank to get them to give me money. I go to get my money out of the bank. There's a difference, right? If it's on deposit. Stand up with me. Praise and worship team, come up here. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.